I learned about the concept of fairness from my dad. My sixth birthday, my parents brought me a fishing rod and a tackle box. It was just packed with lures and sinkers. Well, the next day, showing it off to my neighbor, a kid much older than me, well, he convinced me to do some trading. So it turned out he lured away most of my lures and I got little in value in exchange. Well, that night, my dad who had promised to take me fishing after work, saw that my inventory of red devils, curly tail grubs and other characters fashioning hooks had been quite depleted. I explained what happened. I was kind of a little scared. My dad didn't get mad. And instead, looking back, he used it as a way to teach me a lesson about fairness. How did I feel about the outcome? When I opened the box, did I feel that I had done a good trade? And this concept of fair has always stayed with me. And when the fair trade movement started 25 years ago, it caught my attention. I began to think about, well, how the world's created. I went beyond my immediate gratification. Where did that product come from? How did it get to me? And at the end of the day, did the people who, who were part of that supply chain smile after a day work? Did they think that they were part of a, something greater? Or did they feel that were abused, that they were taken advantage of? I think humanity is at its best when we're fair to each other. But sadly, often we're wired for greed to have someone win at the expense of the other. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Today, my guest is one of the world's leading authorities on fair trade. She leads an organization called Fair Trade International, and its focus is on the living conditions of local farmers around the world. Her name is Dr. Nagoy Nyong'o. Her journey through life begins as a child living in Kenya, becoming the first woman to earn a PhD in biology wood science. She's a positive force of the planet, and she's dedicated to the welfare of farmers. Dr. Nyong'o, welcome to A Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. I've read several articles and interviews and watched you talk about growing up on a farm in Kenya. I've been to Kenya with two of my daughters. We loved our time there, but we were tourists. What was it like for you as a young child growing up in that sort of world of agriculture? Um, it was it was really a simple life. A life, um, you know, not really having the luxuries of life. We lived in a simple house. We had no electricity, uh, no running water. The nearest health facilities were not that near. They were pretty far. So, And the roads were poor, uh, such that during the rainy season, really, you could hardly um, go down the road uh, on a bus or a small car. Uh, and so it, it was a real country life, but very exciting. We're happy um, as children growing up in the, in the village. Our times when we're not in school uh, was really spent in the farm uh, doing farm work. We'd wake up very early in the morning, like 5.30 in the morning, and go to the farm. Uh, breakfast would be brought at around 9.30. Then you'd work, you'd break for breakfast, and then at 1 o'clock, you'd get back home after you know, doing quite a bit of work at the farm. But it was not child labor. It was child work because we did it during the holidays uh, or during um, weekends. With that, what lessons did you learn as a child knowing that you were sort of part of the family and just the business of, of survival? Well, what I learned is that... Um, you know, what I saw around me, what I saw with my mother and the, the other people in the village is the commitment to work. 
you know, they diligently worked every single day in their farms. They were humble people, of course, humble villagers. And it taught me to be humble. It taught me to be committed to whatever work that I do. But more so, I must say that growing up uh, in my family, uh, my parents always ensured that there was fairness. And I look back and I think, is that why I ended up later in life uh, working for fair trade for so long and believing that even in trade, things have to be fair because we were treated fairly. There was no discrimination uh, between the girl child or the boy child. Um, and there's always a practice of social justice uh, in the community that I lived in. And for a young girl working in that sort of small life, many ways, you know, a rainy season cutting you off from the world, what made you pursue your academic credentials? You're a young child. You're, in many cases, the rainy season cuts you off from the world. But you go on and get a bachelor of science from the University of Nairobi and a master's and PhD in forest biology from Iowa State. Tony, I came from a family where education was like oxygen, you know, that you needed to live. But father really did believe that education was the way out of poverty. He himself had really struggled as a young boy to get education for himself with very little support from his parents when he was growing up because then the, his parents didn't really believe in education. But he did, and he wanted his children to have the best education that they could have. And so did my mother. So it was in an environment where education was paramount. Uh, my dad was among the first educated people in my country. Um, and uh, what he went through walking the long distances to school is, was just unimaginable. Uh, of course, we had it easier. The schools were now a lot closer to us. So it was that driving force. But to really go further beyond, uh, for example, high school and uh, first degree, I grew up in a big family. I was the last one of 10 older siblings. So there were already trailblazers ahead of me. So I had very little choice but to aim for the highest. And I made a promise to myself when I was finished high school that I would do it up to the PhD level. And so did I. Not only did you do it, but you, from what I understand, you're the first woman in Kenya to get a PhD in forest biology. And my real question is not only is that an incredible accomplishment, but why trees? What drew you to trees and forestry? I love trees. I mean, I really do find trees beautiful. Um, I find that they have a soul. They're as complex as we human beings. So there's a sense of identity with them. Throughout my life, even as a child, I loved walking into the in the forest. Whenever I was in the forest, I felt some form of tranquility. I felt a sense of freedom. I felt alive. My love for trees has always been with me. Just last weekend, just to tell you, my sister and a friend of hers came to visit me. And this friend had never been to my home. And this friend was just so perplexed. She says, but this is all so bushy. Why do you have so many trees on your compound that you I can't even see through them. Uh, but I told her that that's what makes me tick. I have a big avocado tree outside my window when I work from home. And that avocado tree, when I have problems making a decision on anything, just spending one or two minutes staring at it brings me the solution. So that is my passion 
for trees and how I love trees. My wife grew up in South Africa and she describes her time in Canada by winter. She's been here 33 winters, but she, uh, she loves trees as well. And it's funny that, you know, she hugs trees, she talks to trees and I find my now self touching. She says, touch this bark and feel it. At the beginning, I thought she was just, you know, I, I wasn't sure who I'd married, but over time I've come to experience uh, that. And it's funny, you know, I don't know if you ever saw the biography with Judy Dench, the great actor from England, but she, she does a whole documentary on walking through and she's named every tree in her garden. Yeah, I must really do make a point of watching that. I mean, you know, it'd be good to see uh, somebody express themselves in a documentary about trees. And, you know, when I, th I think, you know, why did I do forestry, for example? It was, most people think that I did it for academic reasons, but actually my choice of going into forestry was purely romantic choice. There was nothing academic there. It's just because I felt that, you know, how would it feel to have a career that you're always in the forest? That was my thinking then. Uh, but of course, it didn't turn out uh, exactly the way I thought. Let's use that as a lesson in life because there's a lot of young people that listen to the show. How important is it to find a career path or an educational path where the, the markers are all based on your passion versus maybe something that you think will get you a job? What I'll tell them and what I do tell my kids, I have three kids, all um, teenagers, well, one teenager and uh, the other two are older, uh, but I tell them, go for your passion. Because when you go for your passion, you will have the commitment. You will succeed. If you go for something that, oh, it's going to get me a job, more times than not, you will not be happy. And I think, you know, the most important thing in life is for one to be happy and one to do something to do something that brings them happiness so you're, you can't go wrong when you follow your passion i'm a fourth generation farmer we raise cereal grains oil seeds alfalfa and we also have a small cow calf operation we depend on free trade policies to maintain our export markets crops that we grow here on this farm are exported across the globe policies that restrict trade would be devastating for farms like ours someday i'd like to pass the farm down to my boys protect free trade and keep our agriculture economy strong you're listening to chatter that matters with tony chapman presented by rbc my special guest is Dr. Nyanyo. She's the CEO of Fairtrade International. She's a force who's really working to support local farmers worldwide. So let's talk about, you, you graduate with a PhD. I, I have to imagine that there's so many opportunities for you. What did you do next and, and why? I did a lot of things, Tony. Um, I think also there's the passion for certain things. Like I think because of my childhood, the passion for fairness, the passion for philanthropy, helping others was always there within me as I grew up and into an adult until I finished my PhD. So when I did finish, I went on ahead to do forest research. It, I was in for academia and research. So I did go on ahead and do research um, I left Iowa, went to Ghana um, to work in a forest research institute. Uh, at that, around that point in time, after that, I did get married, had a baby. That gave me time to reflect on uh, what, which path I was going to follow. Because around this time, I felt that, you know, the forest research was not really my calling. I wanted something to do with people. And even if it's forest oriented, but with people and not laboratory oriented, etc., where I'm alone. So that gave me time to reflect. 
And I realized that, you know, what was really calling for me is how can I work best with people? How can I help uh, improve the livelihoods of, of people? So through that journey, uh, I worked with humanitarian organizations. I worked for wildlife conservation, but specifically on human-wildlife conflict, where people live with wildlife and to find a way on how they can uh, comfortably live together without having conflicts over resources. I worked the humanitarian work. I even worked in southern Sudan during the, the war. Um, and then eventually I came across fair trade. And somehow that clicked. That clicked with me. The fairness I was looking for, the social justice I was looking for all through uh, my childhood and into my adulthood, I found it in fair trade. I found this is where fairness is being practiced, but not only that, people's livelihoods are improving as a result of the activities of fair trade. I want to get into fair trade. It's going to be the majority of this interview, but it's interesting when you talked about being the youngest of 10 siblings. Fairness always taught at home, but at the same time, you're a woman going into a world where you get the you know the first woman PhD from Kenya. How do you overcome back then what might be the stereotypes that say, and I know you deal with it even today, the difference between the value of a male versus a female? Because you're in a world now where you're moving into influencing people, uh, recommending things. What advice can you give to people to say there's our strategies to overcome ingrained biases? And the people you deal with? As a woman, of course, uh, there's always those challenges that you come across, both in school, at the workplace, in general in life. But I think what helped me, and as I said earlier, was my upbringing, where my parents believed that the boy child and the girl child were one and the same thing, and there was no discrimination. I knew that I was good as the boys. I knew I was good as the men and that they had nothing over me. So with that confidence, I could face the world. But really what I could advise any woman or anybody in a minority or in a position that there could be biases against them, I always refer to um, the second agreement of the four agreements of Don Miguel Ritz. I love that book. The second agreement says that don't take anything personally. And I really live with that. I try to live with that as much as possible because it is nothing others do or can say are because of you. It is really because of them. They're basically trying to, uh, to exhibit a projection of their own reality and their own dreams. So it is within you to ensure that you have the strength to realize that it is not about you, it's about them. So don't take it personally. It's interesting because when I watch you in interviews where you're in a panel, you really sit back and listen generously. But then when you speak, it has so much power because the words are being well thought through and it's never about you. It's really about presenting a solution or presenting a problem. And I, I just took a lot away from that saying, you know, that it's not the loudest person in the room that necessarily wins over the audience. It's the person that's really providing the advice that the audience is thirsty for. You're right there, Tony. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, well, let's talk a lot about fair trade. The movement began 25 years ago and, you know, it's very easy for marketing companies to slap a fair trade stamp, you know, just the same way people have sort of tried to surf other trends. 
But it finally seems to really be taking hold where consumers, and maybe it's partly to do with the pandemic, but I think just a sense of awareness that we are one planet and there is a chain that must stay together if this planet is going to continue to, to move. Do you feel that that's happening or is that still just more in conversations at a higher level? Or do you think it's really now finding its way to flowing through all of society? I think it's happening. And I think we've learned a lot of lessons and we are still learning a lot of lessons of how uh, we are really uh, one. One of the lessons, of course, that we learn, we've, we are learning and we've been learning the last uh, decade or so is, for example, the effects of climate change. But more something that is a lot more with us right now is, uh, is, is the COVID, the COVID pandemic, which has really disrupted the supply chains. And so I think more and more awareness is coming to people than has been before. But there's still, I must say that there's still a lot of work to really encourage uh, more awareness still. It's still not enough. It's funny that you know, I've done a lot of work over my career in market research and inside focus groups. People are always putting up their hand. I'm an environmentalist. I, I believe in a great world. But when they walk into a grocery store, they suddenly go from being a consumer and a human being to a shopper on a mission. And a lot of what they believe in and their values seem to be get left at the checkout. Is this awareness, how does it become so people are saying, I'm willing to pay a little bit more. I'm willing to do a little bit more because, again, this is one planet and we are one human race. I think it's, it's, it's not the responsibility of any one group of people. It's the responsibility of all of us. It's working together. It is having, sensitizing the consumers, for example, so that they can create demand for, for the products. It is uh, working with the consumers so that they can mobilize each other to buy fair, for example. It is talking with the grocery stores and the food market manufacturers so that they can increase the offer of uh, fairly traded products. They can increase visibility and, prom and also promote but it's also working with our governments to create conducive environment for fair trade, for example. I mean, if, if I take, for example, the, the EU Commission right now, there's a legislation coming up around deforestation of the EU will, no, will not be allowing products from supply chains that have deforestation. And this is going to force the actors in the supply chains to take action and not to leave it all to the small farmer on the ground uh, to do it all. So it is a concerted effort. It's a concerted effort of uh, all players. So it's a concerted effort, but it's easy then for someone to say, and we're seeing this with climate change, you know, as Canadians that say, it's not my problem. We only contribute 1.6% of the carbon is China's problem. You know, it's very easy when there's a lot of players in the orchestra for somebody to not play to their to their utmost. How do you make sure that each link in the chain feels that, that this is a higher purpose for them? There's need for, um, I would say, social dialogue along the supply chain. All actors along the supply chain talk to each other. Of course, I must say, you talk about an orchestra. So there's need for also an orchestra, what do you call it? The con a conductor of conductor. the orchestra. <laughs> yes, mm. yes. And this is some, one of the roles that, you know, uh, organizations like ours, Fair Trade plays to be the conductor of the orchestra, but the need for social dialogue along the supply chain. We cannot say that this is none of our business. If we can just see recently what has happened to the supply chain during COVID, 
um, when airports were closed, when goods couldn't leave the farm, when um, when goods couldn't arrive to their destination, etc., we were all affected. So how can we say that it's somebody else's problem and not mine? Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. My special guest is Dr. Nagoy Nayanyo. She's the CEO of Fairtrade International, and she's very focused on ensuring that the entire supply chain is committed to fair trade. When we come back, we talk about climate change and the impact it's having on our supply chain. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of the podcast Chatter That Matters. Key takeaway from this pandemic is how much we value our food, how it's grown and raised, and how secure is the supply chain. Well, I want to give a big shout out to RBC for what they do to support agriculture. And a great example, their partnership with Farm Credit Canada and the University of Guelph to create a free online course called Foundations in Agricultural Management to help farmers in Canada take their business to the next level. Farming matters to all of us and to RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Dr. Nayanyo. She's the CEO of Fairtrade International. She's a force who's really working to support local farmers worldwide. Let's talk about a farm that doesn't benefit from fair trade versus a farm that's part of the fair trade movement. And just paint a picture of life on both and personalize it so that my audience can take it personally. So that they understand when they're buying something that is fair trade, that that cascades all the way back to that small farm that I know you fight for every day. We know that, uh, for example, world prices at times really vary, you know, going up and down. One time it's up, one time it's down. And so farmers are left at real uh, awkward positions when they, their cost of production, for example, cannot be covered. So with fair trade, we offer a minimum price. And this fair trade minimum price enables the farmers to cover his cost of production and a little above it. So that when prices in the market prices go down, the farmer is not affected. The cocoa prices in Cote d'Ivoire went down by 25%. That was the market price. But because these uh, fair trade farmers, they were cushioned because there was a fair trade minimum price. So they didn't suffer. Apart from the price that they receive for their product, they're also paid a premium over and above that. And this premium, the fair trade farmer is able to choose what they want to do with it. If they have children going to school that they can't afford to pay the fees, they can use it as a bursary. If the village has no clinic, this money can be used to build a clinic for the villagers. The fertile farmer also has the opportunity to be able to negotiate, to be able to talk, to be able to be on the table because the the fertile model is around empowerment. Empowerment of the farmer, empowerment of the, the cooperative, empowerment of the community. And we believe in fair trade that farming, it must be inclusive of everybody. So the empowerment of the women bringing on the youth also to be part and parcel of the cooperative, for example, to offer leadership. And the next thing I want to talk about is the technology and AI that's coming into farming. Because where I see right now in capitalism, so much of the advantage is going to a few big businesses. You know, they have the data, they have the ability to invest. And the small business owners, and I'm speaking specifically for Canada, 
are getting hurt. COVID's hurt them while others have really benefited. When I was reading about agriculture to do to prepare for this article, and I start hearing about John Deere, the robotic companies, and John Deere smart tractors, and that kind of technology, all of that is going to take labor off the farm and put a lot of power within the hands of these big farming conglomerates. How does your organization work to protect the small farmer as change and inevitable change washes over the agricultural sector. You know, innovation and digitalization, for example, are key. We see them as key to building a fair and more sustainable world. We find that they're equally important in ensuring that smallholder farmers are lifted up and empowered. When we talk about intelligent farming, I think it's important that we measure the intelligence according to its impact on sustainability and social justice. We cannot really separate the two. We must always ask ourselves when we are referring to technology, etc., is how is technology lifting up the people? Because there is good in technology. How is it lifting up the people? And that's why at Fairtrade, we are increasingly now working in the innovation and digitalization space. We are exploring key partnerships, how we can use digitalization to empower our smallholder farmers for example, by granting data ownership to these farmers, by helping them obtain greater digital market access, uh, by ensuring that the products are traceable and that there's transparency in the supply chain. So for us, that is how we see innovation and digitalization as delivering fairness to producers and working towards a more equitable world. But I must say, Tony, that at the end of the day, the achievement of fairness and the power of fair trade is only as effective as cons consumers desire to see a fairer world. So really my question would be, how can the little farmer survive? My answer is simple and very straightforward, I must say. It is for consumers to buy more fair trade. So I heard you in an interview, and I've never seen you angry, but your, your eyes were firing when you talked about the conditions of cocoa farmers men versus women. And if you could paint a picture in terms of how they're treated and paid, to give my listeners just a context of that cocoa that we treasure in terms of the end product, what happens at the very beginning and what must change? Uh, I think first and foremost, what really gets me worked up is that cocoa farmers, a majority of cocoa farmers are still living in poverty. And how this can be explained, I don't know. If we look at the first cocoa exports from West Africa was 128 years ago by the Basel mission. And you'd expect that by now we'd not be talking about poverty in cocoa. When you talk about the gender disparities, and this is something that as Fairtrade we're really working on uh, through our Women's School of Leadership, is that first of all, when you look at the land tenure system, land is owned by men. And so the cocoa trees are owned by men. Uh, the people who do most of the work on the cocoa field are the women. But the income, of course, comes to the landowner, which is the man. And when we, women do work even in cocoa farms as workers, they are paid less than the men. So how can we get women to be more empowered? How can we get the men to be part and parcel of the empowerment of the women? As Fairtrade, we have the Women's School of Leadership, 
where we are working with women and men because you can't leave men behind. What we have in the schools of leadership is the majority of the students are women, but we have also the men there because women will not move ahead without the support of the male folk. So this is really training for them to be to come out as leaders in their communities, in their cooperatives, training for them to also pursue other income generation activities through crop diversification, for example. There are other crops that can be planted apart from cocoa. But at the same time, to work with the men to realize the, the positive effect of having empowered women in their households. The next topic I want to talk about is climate change. And more and more, you're putting this right out front in terms of letting people remind people as the climate changes, the sector that's going to be impacted the most is agriculture. So give us your position on climate change and some of the things we should be thinking about and doing as consumers to support possibility versus what often sounds like the impossibility of a world that's spinning out of control. I'll just give you, start with a very, very simple example, uh, Tony. Um, I spent Christmas, my Christmas in the village, the village that I grew up in. I uh, went to my mom's, my mother's home. Normally during Christmas, when you go for Christmas, there's lots of uh, maize, you know, to eat, etc. Lots of food. But this time around, they want. And the maize that I looked at in the fields of the villages were small little things. They were a third size of what they normally are at harvest season. Why? Because long dry periods suffered last year. And then when the rain comes, it comes at the wrong time. It comes, it comes very heavy. So farmers are faced with these long dry seasons. They're faced with floods. In Kenya, for example, in East Africa, last year and the year before, they were faced with the invasion of the armyworms. So farmers are burdened with the vagaries of climate change. And yet we don't seem to be waking up as the world to see that enough is enough and we need to do something practically about it and not just promises that are never delivered. The farmers need financing to be able to carry out adaptation techniques. For consumers, the farmer needs to be paid better prices for their products. If they are paid better prices for their products, then that cocoa farmer in West Africa will not need to cut down trees to deforest. They would not because that land that they have will produce enough to give them an income that they can live on. But they go ahead and cut down trees because they want more land to increase their productivity because the price you are paying as a consumer is a pittance. Greetings from Nairobi, Kenya. We do not know what of an impact uh, COVID-19 will have on our producers. But all we know as Team Fairtrade is that together we stand. My special guest is Dr. Nagoy Nayanyo. She's the CEO of Fairtrade International. In Canada, the biggest issue that our sector is facing in agriculture is, is farmers are getting old and the next generation's not coming back to the farms. What are you doing to, as an association and, and as an industry to celebrate the calling and the higher purpose of agriculture and inviting the next generations to come in because it is a place where they can make a great living, where they can put a smile on their face because they're part of something majestic, which is, which is a sense of farm to play. 
farming is not sexy enough for the young people. They tend to move to the urban areas to look for work. And yet there's a, there could be a lot of opportunities in the farms, in the rural areas. Um, so there's a lot more need for investment in and support of agriculture for youth to be able to stay. Because even that farmer in the village who is living in perpetual poverty does not want his daughter or his son to continue living in perpetual poverty. So when the youth want to go to the urban areas, they're also even encouraged by their parents. This can be changed. And as Fated, we are working on this. Uh, we've got our youth programs where we realize that the youth might not necessarily be interested in the long-term crop, the cocoa or the coffee uh, that is harvested two times a year. They're interested in more short rotation crops. We're working with them on value addition. For example, the cocoa pods can be used to make, uh, the cocoa house can be used to make uh, shampoo, etc. So this type of entrepreneurship programs uh, that we run with them. Uh, when we have projects like, for example, biogas uh, in, in some of the areas that we work in, then they are trained to be masons, etc. So what we are doing is to be able to create employment for them in their communities. You dedicated your life to science and the welfare of farmers and I guess more importantly, fair trade. What's next for you? Oh, I ask myself that all the time. What is next? But um, what's your avocado tree telling you that what's next for, uh, for you? My avocado tree is telling me there is a time to reflect, recollect, and do something that will be as uh, gratifying as working with farmers. And I'll give you a hint. In the last 10 years or so, I've been supporting girls from vulnerable uh, backgrounds that are um, bright in school, that want to move ahead, but unfortunately their backgrounds are quite vulnerable. So I've been supporting such girls. This I've been doing as a graveyard shift. So I have a foundation called Twigger Foundation. So this time around, I want to give it my energy and see more girls go to school and see more girls make it in the world. You know, I always end my show with three things that I've learned. And it's interesting enough, the first one is what you learn from your parents in terms of this sense of not only a commitment to work hard, but being fair and being equal and realizing that even as the youngest child and a woman, you had a seat at that dinner table and you had a voice. And I think it's wonderful that that lesson in your knapsack has in turn helped so many people along the way. The second is, which I love is your second lesson in life where you go, don't take things personally. But whatever that person is trying to project, whatever biases they have, whatever blinders they have, be confident and be energetic and passionate about your point of view. And the third one, which is the hardest, because I went to three words came to my mind, empowerment, lift, and passion. How important it is as a human race to have your life, to serve others, to empower them, to lift them up, to let them chase their passions. And it's clearly, it's even what you're doing now from where you're taking the Trigger Foundation from a graveyard shift to where you want to focus the rest of your life. You are an absolute joy. You are such a positive contribution to the human race. I hope one day you come to Canada so I can organize a conference around everything you're doing. And I just thank you so much for joining me in Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. And thank you for the accolades. 
I don't believe I deserve all that, but thank you. My final question, if, you, if we went through uh, your backyard and all the trees and I was stumbling through this bush, what tree would you show to me, point out, uh, other than your avocado tree and why? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a simple one. There is a tree we call the Nandi flame, uh, also known as the African tulip. Biological name is Pathodea nilotica. That is the one I'd uh, point out to you. It stands majestic. It has bright orange flowers. It can withstand the wind. Its spirit resonates with mine. And if we came out there, would you let my wife hug that tree? Oh, most welcome. Tell her the next time to come, she comes to Kenya, she's most welcome to come and hug all the trees in my backyard. Joining me is an expert on everything to do with agriculture, resources, and economics. His name's John Granfield. He's a PhD and Associate Dean of External Relations at the Ontario Agricultural College. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me, Tony. Happy to be here. John, there's a report I read talking about the future economy of Canada, and agriculture was cited. The author claimed that we can become a superpower. Do you agree with that? Oh, I, I absolutely do. You're, you're referring to the Barton Report by uh, Dominic Barton. Uh, in that report, Barton talks about how Canada is poised to go from being the fifth largest agricultural exporter to the second largest agricultural exporter in the world. And, you know, the trends are tracking in that direction. Um, but key to it is making sure that we've got investment to help support our people, adequately use the resources that we have available, and make sure that we've got that continuum going from, from innovative on-the-ground research to commercialization and innovation to new products that people are looking for. One of the key barriers to growth might be that our farming community is aging. What can we do to attract young people into the sector? You're right. You know, the, the agricultural sector is, is a bit of an aging sector. And what's important in this regard is making sure that we're, we're keeping people who are, are interested in agriculture focused on staying in agriculture. That's one part of it. And, and that's about training and opportunity. The other part is also um, attracting new people to agriculture. A lot of people have this uh, sort of a pastoral view of what contemporary agriculture is like. And what they don't maybe understand or know about is the dynamic nature of the sector, the, the level of innovation and technologies that are being used, the, the rise of digital agriculture and the, the coming revolution that we're going to see in that regard. And I think key there is making sure that the people who uh, are in agriculture have the skills that they need to succeed, but also people who are being attracted and, and entering agriculture are doing so with the right skill set. So talk to me about what the University of Guelph, Farm Credit Canada and RBC are doing to help farmers scale their business. The Royal Bank approached us uh, to see if we would be interested in, in working with them and collaborating on developing an online e-learning platform to support Canadian producers uh, and help them develop their business management skills. Uh, producers know how to grow. And so what we're doing in this course is trying to give those business management skills to producers that we know are essential to them growing their enterprise beyond what it currently is. What's the best way to connect with your university? And what's the best way to connect with the program you're doing with RBC? Well, I, I think for, for uh, on the RBC front and our partnership, uh, go to GuelphAgriculturalManagement.com and, and sign up for our course. It's a free uh, e-learning platform. It's open to anyone, uh, eight modules. You can learn at your own pace. Uh, when you're, you're done all the modules and the quizzes, you get a certificate of completion. Uh, the other thing I would encourage people to do is to, to come to the University of Guelph website and explore the different uh, opportunities and, and activities that we have, not just in my college, but also across the university. You know, we, we position ourselves as Canada's food university, and we mean that with a lot of sincerity that it, you know, food and agriculture is woven throughout the fabric of what we do on an everyday basis. John Cranfield, Associate Dean and PhD, thank you for your passion 
And thank you for joining us in Chatter That Matters. Thank you for having me, Tony. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.